everybody. I want to remind you as we're meeting, um, we have a team of people down in Mexico. And I just bring that up so you'll keep praying all week. Today's their triumphal entry, if you will, into the villages. About 170 high school students and adults are there. Um, and then the team of us leaves on Wednesday to head to Israel. Uh, and we'll be out uh, for nine days in Israel. And would appreciate your prayers for that as well. And I want to say I loved Easter. Wow, that was a great time together. So um, great job with that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for uh, just the amazing relevance of it. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts right now. We all need what's, uh, what you did with Peter on that beach because we're flawed, we're broken, we're rebels, we're betrayers, we are Peter. So God, would you make your word come alive, and Jesus, would you uh, come up from the pages of scriptures? We pray these things in Christ's name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. All right. So it was the mornings after that were always the low point of my high school years and early college. The morning ofs were always the build-up, the expectation, the planning, the conniving. The evening of was actually rarely a letdown. I'm not going to lie. The Bible is very clear. Sin is fun for a season. Oh, the evening of, the breaking of the Ten Commandments, the engaging activity that was actually shameful. Somehow in our deceit, we would revel in those moments. If you're a guest here, you need to know that we're not down on sin because it's naughty or nasty. We're down on sin because of what Jesus says about sin. It's dehumanizing. It's destructive. It erodes who you are as an image bearer of God. But in the night of, we forgot all that. We didn't even know that. We just bought into the lie, we deserve this. And we'll get it at all costs. But then the morning afters, the wake-up call. Daylight and sobriety will wake you up. What have I done? Who did I harm? Who do I need to apologize to? The mornings after were filled with empty promises and penance for me. Empty promises. God, I will never do this again. I will never. I promise you, if you don't take my life, I'll never do this again. Just don't let me get caught. And penance. I better go to church. Uh, Where's a Bible? I better read it. I better pray for an hour or for my penance of choice. I better watch TV evangelism. And I turn on the TV evangelist. I remember one morning after, I was in high school, and it was an extreme night before. My parents were gone all weekend, and they finally trusted me to be at home alone my senior year in high school. And I betrayed their trust in terrible ways. I woke up the morning after, and I went after all my promises and penance ritual, and then I cleaned up the house and threw all the garbage into the garbage can, and then I went to go play basketball with my friends. While I was out playing basketball, my parents came home. And by the time I came home, my vivid memory in our house was that my dad was in the living room watching Wide World of Sports. Remember that old show, Wide World of Sports? Yeah. And he was in the lounger chair, and he said, hey, son, welcome home. Oh, thanks, Dad. He said, go get me a soda. I went back past the living room into the kitchen, and on the counter was lined up all the bottles and cans from the night before. Only my dad didn't act like they were there, but he put them there. So uh, at that point, 
That was my agony of defeat moment. <laughs> I, I went and got a soda can, and I came back in the room tepidly and gave it to him. And again, he was acting like nothing was different. Finally, I just, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And, and we had a little talking too. Uh, as a matter of fact, last week, I just got done being grounded from that experience. <laughs> Now, soon after that, uh, by the grace of God, in early college, I became a follower of Jesus. I came to Christ and was wooed to him with the offer of new life. See, sin was destroying me and dehumanizing me in such a way I didn't like who I was becoming, but I couldn't stop the downward spiral. Uh, The offer of new life, the offer of eternal life, the premise of grace and the promise of forgiveness, that's all I needed to come to Christ. And there was newness in me. There was euphoria. I started seeing things I'd never seen before. But then I fell. And I fell hard. And I'll spare you the details. Uh, They're not pertinent to the story, but here's the pertinent part. The morning after came, and I went right back to my old empty promise penance ritual as a Christian. What have I done? God, I promise you I'll never do this again. I promise you this. I promise you that. And then I went into penance. As if what Christ did on the cross wasn't enough, I needed to continue to crucify myself because that sin was too big just for what Jesus did on the cross. See, up to that point, I was only like a month old in the Lord. I was taught about grace. I was exhorted to avoid old patterns of sin. Now, don't miss this. But no one taught me how to deal with the guilt of moral failure. I was not ready for the enemy's full force fury of lies and accusations that come on the morning after. 30 years now as a follower of Jesus, I've learned that the tragedy of sin is not just that it's a moral failure. The tragedy of sin is that Satan uses the guilt from last night's, from last week's, from last month's failure to turn Christ followers into tepid, passive, play-it-safe, poor theologians who believe what Jesus did on the cross wasn't enough, and so I have to add to that by beating myself up to earn God's acceptance. It gets even worse. I've learned in my 30 years of walking with the Lord in my own life and in others' life that the mornings after is when Satan accuses and takes all those dreams you had of being something for Christ and dashes them and says, God will never use you now. How could God use the man you were last night? How could God use the woman you were last week? God doesn't use liars. God doesn't use porn guys. God doesn't use... Uh, it goes on and on and on. Satan's full force fury comes out on the morning after. And the sad thing for me, no one taught me how to deal with the guilt of receiving his lies. Now everyone look right here. As your pastor, I've come to this pulpit today to take that weapon out of Satan's hands. We all have morning afters. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says this. Look what the Bible says. Believe the Bible. Don't believe your guilt or your feelings, which may or may not be accurate. Look what it says. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. There are plenty of churches out there that want to live in the first, uh, betray the first line, live like we never sin. We're the good people. We've got it all together. I can send you to some of those churches. We're not one of them. Around here, we play it real. We believe Jesus died for sinners. He died for wrecks, moral wrecks like us. And uh, we don't claim that we have no sin. But neither do we not equip each other 
for how to deal with the morning after. I want to take you to a place of morning after. Your Bible's open to John 21, right? It's important. Let me give you the backstory that leads us into this one. Uh, come back to the upper room. Has it been too long? The upper room. Remember Jesus in the upper room? Jesus predicted Peter would deny him. And Matthew records at that point, Peter's signature sin, pride, wells up. And Peter calls out every one of the disciples in that upper room and says, you know what? Even if they all deny you, I would never deny you. As a matter of fact, Jesus, Matthew says, by by Matthew, I mean the uh, biographer, Matthew. He wrote the biography of Jesus. Matthew says, Peter said, I'd even die for you. Think of the shame that he put on all those other guys, right? Then Jesus gets arrested. Then Jesus, Jesus goes through six illegal trials through the night. And Luke records at one of those trials, it's Peter's moment of reckoning. He denies Christ twice, and he's in a courtyard around an open flame, and a servant girl, a girl, not even a woman, says, hey, Aren't you one of his followers? This is the third time Peter gets called out. And Luke records Peter curses himself. You know what that means? At that point, Peter says, I blankety blank, 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 blankety blank, don't know him. And here's what cursing yourself means. And I'll go to hell if I do. Now, Luke records at that point, Jesus was being transported from one illegal trial to another. And right when Jesus, Peter said that, two things happened. The rooster crowed the third time, and it says that Jesus and Peter's eyes met. Can you imagine? Peter runs out and weeps bitterly. And, and he's crying and crying. And it's not like the, uh, the tear crying. It's the snot-producing, asphyxiating, weeping, right? Don't miss this, okay? But that moment was not repentance. Because repentance is not when you get caught. Repentance is not when you cry. Repentance is when you change. This is so important, I can't even get into all the detail. So I put a page three in your sermon notes that I won't even cover. But I pray that you would rip page three off and page three would become part of your Bible. Page three would become part of what you use the morning after. Page three would be so important to you. Uh, I, cannot, I cannot understate how important this is as we talk about this. Peter's exposed. He's a poser. He's a moral rebel. His sin, like all our sins, has distanced him from the Savior he vowed to follow. And while he was destined to lead the Jesus movement, now in his mind, weeping bitterly, his career is forfeited, his confidence is stolen, his character is exposed. Who's going to put Humpty Dumpty back together again? Jesus will in John 21. This raises so many great issues, like, is the grace of Jesus so extreme that I can't out-sin it? Does my sin so extreme that Jesus can't forgive it? The, the promises God put on my life, the hopes and dreams he put on my life that my sin has distanced me from, where I can't even see it anymore, what happens to those on the morning after? All of that is addressed in John 21. Jesus uh, next meets them in Galilee. So now we're about uh, 70 miles from Jerusalem. Jesus is risen, and he appeared two times and told the disciples to wait. But here's the deal. Peter's not good at waiting. He hates waiting. So Peter is in his hometown. He goes to a storage locker. He opens up the garage, and there's his boat. 
So he takes out the boat and dusts it off. He takes out the sails and makes sure they work. He mends the net and says, let's go fishing. And while they're on fishing, Brian read it, uh, the morning after Jesus shows up. And Peter, instead of running away from Jesus, now swims or runs to Jesus. And Jesus, who's the great physician, performs surgery on the beach. Let's look at the surgical procedure. Are you ready? Here we go. Here's the things he does. Key to repentance. Key to you moving forward as a new person in Christ. Key that someone, no one, no one ever taught me this in the morning after. Here's what Jesus does as a great surgeon, a great physician. First, he opens the wound. He opens the wound. If you look at John 21 and read it, he actually recreated the scene from the night of the betrayal. Uh, Peter betrayed Christ three times. Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Peter betrayed Christ by a fire. Jesus lit a fire and asked the question over a fire. He comes right back. It's almost as if he takes uh, Peter by the nape of the neck and puts his face in his sin. Not to shame, not to guilt, but to show him, let's call this for what it is so that we can repurpose your future that'll be different from the future that you're going to head down if you keep denying what you did. Does that make sense? Uh, one, one biographer or uh, commentator called it uh, a gracious violence of what Jesus did. John 21, verse 15. When they'd finished eating, Simon Peter, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, first question is really important. Do you love me more than these? What's he doing? He's taking him back to the scene, actually in the upper room, when Peter stood up. In essence, Jesus is saying this with all the grace and truth and love in him. Peter, you and I both know you stood up and you told me you'd love me more than these other guys. You shamed all of them by saying, they're going to deny you. I won't even die for you. If they put me to a cross, I'll go to the cross with you. And so I'm going to ask you straight up, do you love me more than these? You and I both know And he said this in love, you're a poser. You're not the man you said you were. I knew that all along. The problem is, Peter, ready? You didn't know that. So do you love me more than these? Peter knows he doesn't. And at a point of the beginning of restoration, he comes to a point of of authenticity and he says, I love you. Now note what he doesn't say, more than these. It's Peter's confession. I'm a failure. I'm not the man I thought I was. And what I love next is what comes out of Jesus' mouth. Feed my lambs. Come on, that's good stuff. Feed my lambs. Peter, I use failures. I use failures. I use posers. I use hypocrites. I use moral failures. But you've got to come and do it my way. Your sin didn't disqualify you. So come on, there's some lambs to be fed. Let's go feed them together. I love that. Jesus opens the wound because uh, this is really important. And Tim Keller said it best. Repentance, life-changing repentance begins where blame-shifting ends. This is so simple yet profoundly challenging because Peter's nature is to belittle his sin, to blame others for his sin. It's my propensity too. We'll never repent until we take full responsibility for our moral condition and what happened on the night before. What I'm advocating for is using God's definition of sin for yourself. Because you ready for this? Jesus taught this. We, We went through this. The truth will set you free. Do we believe that? 
See, I've found in my own life I can use different terms for sin when I'm confessing. I can use different terms to belittle the sin, to make it less painful, more digestible, actually make it more comfortable. Uh, So it's not lying for me, it's stretching the truth. It's not lust, it's a wandering eye. It's not gluttony, it's comfort food. It's not greed, it's a bargain I couldn't resist. It's not prejudice, it's they deserve it. It's not sinful anger, it's just that I live in a world of idiots. See, when I do that, I'm, I'm belittling the sin, making it more digestible to me, but in reality, I'm continuing to dehumanize myself and destruct myself. That's not repentance. God, I know I was wrong, but... Look at me, everybody, please. A repentance starts when you take the butt out of your confession. And you put on your big boy pants, or you put on your big girl pants, and you say, okay, I may have been provoked, but I reacted. It's what Brian shared. It was a great example on the basketball court. I may have been provoked. They may have been running a zone defense, but I reacted. And that exposes a deep cauldron of sin inside me, Jesus, that I need you to take out of me. I take full responsibility for my actions. I need your intervention. Repentance begins when blame shifting ends. The first thing the master surgeon does is he takes Peter to a place and he opens the wound. The second thing he does is he unmasks the sin to expose it for what it is. In verse 15 to 17, he asks Peter the same question three times, only he doesn't call him Peter this time. Look what he says. When they fin- and names mean everything in the Bible. When he finished eating, he said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? See, they finished eating and now Jesus gets real by the fire. He's no longer Peter. He's no longer rock. That's what the word means in the original language. He calls him by his own old name, which Simon, son of John, means this. Wanderer, aimless, drifter, vacillator. What I mean by means this, uh, the Bible was not written in English. It was written in a language, a dead Greek language called Koine Greek. In Koine Greek, Simon, son of John, means wanderer, aimless, drifter, vacillator. The Lord always used Peter's former name, and he did it four times in the Gospels when Peter was acting like his former self. He's not going to mince words. He's not going to play into Peter's charade. And here's what I want you to notice. This is so important. Jesus never addresses Peter's behavior. Never. He doesn't say, now, Peter, are you ever going to lie again? No, Lord, sorry I lied. Now, Peter, are you ever going to betray me again? Sorry, Lord, I betrayed you. No, he doesn't do that because Jesus teaches, and you need to understand this, especially if you're not around church much or don't know the Bible. Jesus teaches sin is internal and motivational long before it's external and expressed. That's why Jesus rarely addresses the external behavior. He always goes to the heart, especially in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. 
So Jesus is trying to get to the root of Peter's sin, the root of what plagued him his whole life with the hopes that Peter would forever change from that moment on. So he's not going to talk about the betrayal. He's not going to talk about the cursing. Now, Peter, you said you wanted to go to hell. Hell's hot, Peter. Do you really want to go there? He doesn't do that. Because the root of Peter's sin was not wanting to go to hell. Don't miss this. The root of his sin was pride. It plagued him his whole life. And Jesus takes him to a moment on the shore where he says this, Peter, we've got to feed some lambs. I haven't given up on you, but here's the deal. Your pride, it's not going to go forward from this day forward. We're going to leave it right here on the beach. But I have to address it, and this might hurt, but I only hurt you because I love you. Right now in Mexico, there's you know a group of people down there and Every time in Mexico, it comes to a place where we take the group purposely and intentionally because you, know, you get people away from their, their smartphones and their earbuds, and it's amazing how people hear from God after a matter of time. And, um, and so we get them to a place where they, they just come alive. These students and adults come alive in Mexico. And it always comes to the point where the question is asked, what are you going to leave in the dirt in Mexico? What has God revealed to you that you don't want to take back over the border because it's killing you? That's what Peter's, uh, Jesus is asking Peter right here. Peter always thought he was better than these. And Jesus has to get Peter to a place of honesty where he says, You know what, Peter? I was never your foundation. Your pride was your foundation. I was never on the throne of your life. You were. And so, Peter, I want to ask you right now, do you want to enthrone me? Or are you going to stay on the throne and try to do religious stuff and have me tag along? Do you know the difference? What would it look like if your life was enthroned by Jesus Christ? Uh, Watch this video. Jesus, I have decided to give you this. Really? Yeah. You know whoever sits here makes all the decisions, right? I know, and I'm always making decisions, but you make the perfect decisions, so you just sit right down and start making them. Wow, I'm honored. I mean, this feels great. Kathleen, guess what? I just got my new credit card. It's time to go shopping. Oh, really? I thought your husband and you were going to pay off debt. Oh, yeah. I mean, money's kind of tight, but I figured he doesn't have to know about it. So do you want to go with me? No. (laughs) No? Why? Uh, What I mean is, uh, I don't know. Um, So let me check my schedule, and then I'll get back to you. Okay, yeah, give me a call. Okay. (laughs) Kat, what's going on? What do you mean? Well, I'm kind of one cheek in it here. Look, I just want to make sure we're on the same page. You wanted me to sit here, right? Well, of course. And whoever sits here makes all the decisions? Right. So what's the problem? Uh, There's not a problem. I just, I don't know what I was thinking. Really, please, here, sit down. As long as you're sure. I'm sure. Okay. So let's start over. Okay. All right. Kat, I noticed that you've been losing your temper a lot lately. Right. Okay, Jesus, you know what? I know what you're going to say, but um, you you don't know the whole situation, you know? Well, all I'm saying is that your attitude is a decision. Yes, of course, but I have a lot going on right now. Well, I know you're under a lot of pressure. Pressure? Jesus, you don't understand pressure, okay? This isn't working, Kat. What? We can't both sit on the seat. It's either me or it's you. Okay, I know. You know, I I didn't think it was going to be this hard, but here, just take it. No, I'm not going to take it. You have to give it to me. Okay, here. Kathleen, make a choice. I can't. You just did.
That's the wrestling match Peter was going through on the beach. It's the wrestling match you and I go through. Who's going to make the call the shots? Who's going to run your life? Are you going to keep relabeling sin to make it more agreeable because you're so um, intimate with it, you can't imagine your life without it? Am I going to keep belittling my sin and my behavior because I think it's so life-giving to me, completely blind to what it's meaning to the people around me? Are we going to let Jesus call the shots? And are we going to live into his definition as opposed to ours or the culture's? One of the most liberating nights of my life was in 1983, about a year after that moral fall. I remember I was sitting in, uh, in Kansas City with a large group, about, it doesn't matter, but thousands of college students, and Billy Graham was speaking. And he was talking about this very thing, and he asked us, who's going to be the Lord of your life? And I still have in my Bible at home uh, a contract I made that night with the Lord. I'm tired of running my life. Yeah, I know you're in my life. I know I'm going to heaven but I'm still trying to rule my life my way. You take the throne of my life tonight and you call the shots. I'll go where you want. I'll do what you want. I'll say what you want. There's about 20 of us that made that commitment in that room that night. And, you know, it's gone back and forth, but uh, my life was never the same after that night. Never the same. And I have a contract in my Bible. I was even, as a college student, I pricked my hand and put blood on the page because I wanted Jesus to know I really meant it. We'll never break free from sin's clutches unless we see our behavior as rooted in the desire to dethrone God and do life our way. When you see sin that way, it'll look a whole lot different. Now, there's a third thing. I've, I've had surgery really once in my life. Two years ago, I had shoulder surgery. Uh, you know, the doctor opened the wound. The doctor exposed it and cleaned it. And at that point, it wouldn't be enough if the doctor said, okay, we're done here. Let's leave. That wouldn't be enough. He had to go shave the bone and do whatever they do when you have shoulder surgery. That's what Jesus does now. He forgives the sin and allows the healing to begin. Look at verse 17. I'm going to read beyond what was read to you. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? This is the important part right here. Peter was hurt. Peter was hurt. Now I want to ask this. I need you to stick with me, okay? Because some of you are going to think religious. Like, oh, good, we got to hurt. Uh, I'm not talking about penance kind of hurt, but when was the last time you were really hurt and mourned over your sin? Not mourned that you got caught, not mourned that, you know, gosh, now I'm addicted. I don't mean to belittle that, but mourned at what you did over the Savior. Why was Peter hurt? Because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. The word hurt there is a strong word that's really in the Gospels. In every other place it's used in the Gospels, it's only used at a funeral for people grieving over a death. But here, Peter is mourning and weeping again. He's grieving over something. Jesus had to hurt him so he'd never be the same. His sin didn't hurt him. Jesus had to put him to a place where he says, do you see what you've done? Not that you got caught, but do you see what you've done? Do you know the difference? Uh, when I was, uh, when we took Ju- uh, Juela, our fifth daughter, in, she came to us at, uh, from the Congo at uh, close to four years old. And she came beautiful and bacteria-ridden. And we had to get the bacteria out of her. We didn't know what bacteria was in her. So she had to go get blood tested. And honestly, in this whole process, the worst and low point of this process is when Ann and I went to Kaiser late at night 
with her. She barely spoke English, knew very little English. She didn't know what she was in for, and she had to get blood tested. They took seven little vials of blood out of her. And I remember holding her in that room, and she is screaming, screaming in Lingala, a language I didn't even understand. I've got my my legs around her and my arms around her. She's like a little 50-pound thing, and I, I can barely control her. And she's screaming, why? Why are you doing this to me? This hurts. And I couldn't communicate to her, I'm doing this because I love you. There's something in you that's going to kill you unless we get it out. And we've got to find out what that is. It's that hurt that Peter had when Jesus was probing. He was hurt. Now, there's an important verse here, 2 Corinthians 7.10, that displays two types of sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. That's the hurt that Jesus is bringing Peter to on the shore. Godly sorrow that leads to salvation uh, and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow leads to death. Here's the deal, everybody. You're going to hurt either way. Sin hurts. Payday comes someday. If you're going to hurt, if I'm going to hurt, I'd rather hurt on the path to life than hurt on the path to death. Who's the poster child for worldly sorrow? Peter, after he betrayed Christ, ran from Christ and wept bitterly. But you know who the poster child is? Judas. He was sorrowful. He gave back the money. And then he went and hung himself and died. And Jesus called him a son of perdition. Judas is in hell, according to Jesus. But he was sorrowful. But he didn't come back to Christ. Who's the poster child for godly sorrow? Peter in John 21. Let me give you the difference. Worldly sorrow is grieving over yourself. Worldly sorrow is looking at your behavior and grieving over what it's done to you. Worldly sorrow is self-pity. Look at what my sin cost me. Worldly sorrow is being repentant because you were caught or you're afraid of being rejected. Worldly sorrow is temporary life change. Godly sorrow is grieving over your Savior. Godly sorrow is looking at your sin and grieving over what it did to Jesus. Godly sorrow is looking at your sin and and saying, God, I cannot get out of this. You've got to get me out of this. Godly sorrow is repenting because you know you're accepted by God. He would never turn his back on you. See, there's a difference between being sorry because you were caught and the consequences and being sorry because of what the destruction has done to you, to Jesus, and to others. Both sorrows lead to change. Only one leads to life. Am I being clear? So, the distinguishing mark of saving faith for followers of Christ, as we close this out, it's not perfection. Let me say that again. The distinguishing mark for followers of Christ is not perfection. Jesus doesn't expect you to be perfect. We saw in 1 John 1.8, he expects you to sin. The distinguishing mark of followers of Christ is not that you don't sin morally. The mark of faith, you ready, is that you fight. You fight for anything that dims the sight of Jesus as your all-encompassing and all-glorious Savior. You fight for anything that diminishes his lordship in your life. You fight for anything that threatens to replace Jesus on the throne of your life. You fight the good fight of faith using the sword of the Spirit, the Scriptures, the Scriptures. You fight, men and women. And I'm here to encourage you to keep on fighting.
So as we close, I'm going to pray and then Brian's going to come up and I'm going to pray you come to a fire today. You come just as you are. You let Jesus define you. You confess your sin and you hear him say, feed my lambs. Because that's the bottom line, men and women. There are lambs to be fed in this county. You know that. I know that. There are sheep that need to be shepherded. There are people Jesus loves who aren't in relationship with him. And you had dreams of going and ministering to them in the workplace, on your street, through your family. But then the night happened. And the morning after, we bought into the lie, I'm not good enough. Wrong. I hope today you see God uses moral failures. Fight like a woman. Fight like a man of God. And let's go feed some sheep. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Even, even these parts, Lord, they're so liberating. I just think of Peter. He was never the same after that encounter. And I pray, we have prayed in all three services, the same thing would happen. People would leave this building never the same because they understand grace. They understand reconciliation. Jesus, you are a restorer. They understand that they can never out your grace. And they come back to you and they find life. I pray for that, Lord. And I pray against the enemy's lies right now who is uh, stealing, killing, and destroying what you put in our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said? listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We're located at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard in Redwood City, California. You can reach us online at www.peninsulacovenant.com.